A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, which is another installment of the Great American Jewish Cities series on Jewish History Soundbites, and this time we're profiling Houston, Texas, and it has been generously sponsored anonymously in honor of Rabbi and Rebetzin Shimon and Chiena Lazarov, longtime Shlichim of Chabad in Texas, Rabbi and Rebetzin Yeshua and Freddy Wender of the Young Israel of Houston, and Rabbi and Rebetzin Joseph Radinsky of the United Orthodox Synagogue. These were the rabbis of Houston in the last half a century, which built the Orthodox Jewish community. They were the architects of the rebirth of Orthodox Jewry in Houston over the last several decades, and it is to their credit that the Orthodox community in Houston is a vibrant and flourishing present, and not just a fascinating story of the past. So the City Series is back. It's a bit of an unintended hiatus, uh, and we'll have some more cities being profiled over the fall, the coming fall and winter, and we're happy that it's back. Before I get to Houston... So I have a little uh, belated tribute, uh, not purposely belated, just because I haven't had too many episodes lately. Uh, we're back on track, though, now for the fall and winter. So just a tribute to a couple of weeks ago, the passing, unfortunate passing of literally the end of an era, uh, Mr. Benny Fishoff, who was, um, was a legend of the past century. Uh, he, I never met him, but I watched several interviews of his and I researched his story, his life, literally encompassed so many rich areas of Jewish history of the 20th century. He was someone who grew up in Ludz, uh, to a family of Ger Hasidim, and he met the Ger Rebbe, the Imrayemis, on several occasions and received guidance from him. He had vivid memories of the court, the Hasidic court in pre-war Ger, and the Ger Shtiblach in Ludz, and, and of Polish-Jewish life, the vibrancy of Polish-Jewish life um, pre-war. And he even remembered the young Rav Pinchas Menachem Alter, later on the Pnei Menachem of Ger, he remembered his Bar Mitzvah. And, uh, and he it was considered at that time the last great event of Hasidic Polish Jewry it took place in the summer of 1939, literally weeks before everything fell apart and the world went dark. And with the outbreak of the war, the young Benny Fishtoff escaped to Vilna. He even had a short uh, several-month uh, I think a three-month stint in the Tells Yeshiva. So you had this real Polish Gerachasid in the old, you know, one of these strongholds of of uh, the Lithuanian Yeshivas and Tells. 
But uh, shortly afterwards, he went on and moved on. He was able to get out to Shanghai, uh, ended up there. He was close uh, with the Amshan of a Rebbe and the Jewish community in Shanghai, and it was sort of loosely associated with the branch of the Yeshiva Schachme Lublin in Shanghai, but he was mostly on his own. He was mostly uh, already going into business and started to see success. And after losing his entire family in the war, he makes it to the United States, rebuilds, married a new family, success in in uh, business, and he maintained his connections to Ger in in Israel and in the Agudas Yisrael in, in America. So he had really an amazing, amazing life, an amazing story. Um, so just wanted to pay tribute to him. I also want to make a reminder, we're in the middle of a Shemitah series, and parts three and four are waiting uh, for sponsors. If you want to uh, be in touch with me about sponsorships for that, as well as any other topic of your liking, uh, be in touch with me, Yehuda, at YehudaGeber.com for, for uh, sponsorship. The origins of the Houston Jewish community are, are, are much more fascinating than that. Um, the first Jews that, that saw South Texas were Spanish Jews, uh, conversos. They came from, came from Mexico. They came from, they were hidden Jews. And one of the original government officials of the area of what later became Southern Texas um, was still under the control of Mexico at the time, talking about in the 16th century, was burned at the stake at an auto de fe at uh, Mexico City. Um, so you had that. And then later on in the 16th, 17th century, they had they had other isolated Jews, also from converso families who settled in the area, who were traitors. The pirate John Lafitte, um, there are rumors or myth or legend, or whatever you want to call it, that he had connections to a converso family and some of his captains in the pirate trade were Jewish and he was later exiled to Galveston Island, and there's all kinds of myths about his buried pirate treasure there uh, and on Galveston till till this very day. So there are individual Jews who live there over the time, some of them from Sephardic background, like I mentioned, some are coming from Europe as traders, there were even Jews at the Alamo, but uh, there, the substantial influx came in the late 1800s and early 1900s, especially with the Galveston plan, which I'm going to get to, obviously, uh, probably in part two. Um, many moved on from Texas. It was a port of entry, uh, Galveston and later Houston, and many immigrant Jews moved on to the Midwest and to the West, uh, getting as far as California, but some settled down in in different areas of Texas because the cotton business was booming in the late 1800s, and Jews controlled a large portion of the cotton trade. There were close to a thousand Jews living in Galveston itself. And, and later on, the, the city of Houston gets a larger Jewish population as well. And, and that happened because the great hurricane of 1900 destroyed um, Galveston. Uh, the hurricane was actually on a Friday, on an Arab Shabbos, and the Jews uh, of, the, of the town had their homes destroyed. The homes were at that time below sea level, and it destroyed the town till today. As far as I know, it was the biggest natural disaster in United States history, the great hurricane of 1900 in, in southern Texas. Thousands died, including many Jews who lived in Galveston, because Jews were a big part of the population. And that's when Houston took over after that. Um, they built the ship channel up to, up to Houston further north, and the city of Houston grows, and subsequently the Jewish community of Houston grows. So before the Civil War, it was mostly German immigrants um, living in Houston uh, and in Galveston. And they concentrated in the retail trade. They owned 
of Houston's stores, of the city's stores in by the time the Civil War broke out, and most achieved economic success rather quickly. It was a affluent uh, community, relatively small. It was only 26 Jewish households living there by the Civil War, but uh, 16 of those 26 owned more than $1,000 in real estate at that time, in the 1800s. So there's substantial uh, Jewish wealth by that time. In 1854, the Jewish community of Houston begins to organize. They purchase land for a Jewish cemetery. And in 1859, 32 men founded uh, Houston's first Jewish, uh, actually, first Jewish congregation, Beth Israel. Uh, almost all of them were immigrants, primarily from Germany, but some of them were from Eastern Europe as well. And almost all of these founding members were wealthy, which is also an interesting phenomenon. Um, of this group of 21 founders, six of them were slave owners. So most of them only owned one as a house servant, but they were slave owners. They were real Southerners. They were integrated into the Southern culture and society. And uh, so, if, you know, if we would go with you know, cancel culture, so there are only 15 founders, we'd have to knock out six of them. But either way, there were 21. Um, and despite the prominent economic role in the city, most of uh, most of these Jews were still observant uh, at this point in the mid-19th century, the traditional Jewish practice. And most uh, of the Houston Jews at this point kept Shabbos and didn't do business. Their stores were closed. Um, the first president of Beth Israel, this synagogue, Mr. Levy, uh, moved from uh, to the city from Charleston, South Carolina, which had a substantial um, uh, Jewish community at that time, and um, and he had led the the breakaway, the Orthodox breakaway from which I spoke about in another episode when they covered Charleston, um, that the first Reform co- uh, congregation in, was in Charleston, so there was an Orthodox breakaway. So this Levy was in, was the head of that breakaway, and he's the one who moves to to uh, to Houston. So. So it's, it's an Orthodox uh, community at this time. When Beth Israel bought a wooden building in 1860 for use as a synagogue, it had separate seating for men and women. And members were even fined if they came into synagogue without a head covering. Uh, so they, they, had a, they hired a sheichet to provide kosher meat. Um, not every member was observant, but in general it was an observant community. Uh, in 1861, Beth Israel's leadership was trying to enforce Shabbos observance on all its members with a new rule requiring that everyone keep their stores closed on Shabbos. And several members were suspended from the congregation for violating the rule. Um, In 1864, which is still the middle of the Civil War, the men of the congregation took over the religious school that had been founded a year earlier by the women of Beth Israel. And they claimed that the women... Had uh, were too too modern. They were not observant enough. So the men had to take it over and uh, make it more observant. After the war, after the Civil War, in other words, uh, Beth Israel, which had by now fifty six members in eighteen sixty six, so they started to move away from orthodoxy towards Reform Judaism, which was quite prevalent at the time on the United States landscape. And I've discussed it in other episodes covering other cities. In 1868, the members of the shul voted overwhelmingly to adopt the the Reform Prayer Book, Minig America, of Isaac Mayer Wise, which I discussed, in, I think, in the Pittsburgh episode. Some 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 uh, um, some members disagreed, but uh, the congregation began to be totally reformed. They added an organ to to the services, and um, which was a controversial decision, but they but the, they, they 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 eventually added it. Um, in the 1870s, 
1874, Beth Israel joined the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, so making it completely part of Reform Judaism. Um, so they, 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 they built a new building, and um, since it was still the only synagogue in the entire Houston, so there was all this continued dispute um, of how, how, what, what ritual do they observe and what they don't. And it was, you know, took quite a few decades until, uh, until these things were resolved and other shuls opened, other synagogues opened, other temples opened. And, um, you know, in, in fact, there was a Hebrew Ladies Benevolent Society charity ball, and it was not well attended when they made an event, uh, presumably because they served ham, and that alienated the more traditional elements of the Jewish community, and therefore they did not attend. So there's this you know, tension within the community of how much tradition and how much of complete reform or even assimilation. So finally, in 1887, a group of traditional members left Beth Israel and began to meet for Orthodox services. And joining them, we're talking about 1887, this is already after the start of the Great Immigration, which just obviously commences in 1881. So there's now immigrants arriving in Houston like everywhere else in America. So Houston eventually has two different Orthodox uh, shuls. One was Galician from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and one was Russian, uh, Polish and Russian Jews from the Russian Empire. And in 1891, these two groups joined together to form a new congregation called Adath Yeshuru. And, uh, and, and they... Uh, and they finally, you know, buy a building in 1894. And in the and, and Houston as a city is developing now rapidly because it had become a port and oil's discovered and the, there's an explosion in the population. So as Jewish population is growing as well, it reaches an 11,000 people by 1927. Now much of this growth in Houston's Jewish population was due to the increasing numbers of immigrants from Jewish immigrants from Russia, especially because of the Galveston plan. Um, which, which I'm going to get to when we discuss Galveston, but it, would, it was a, a plan that went from 1907 to 1914, which wanted to redirect Jewish immigration away from New York because New York was being flooded with Jewish immigrants at Ellis Island. So it wanted to get them more to the center of the country through this major Texas port, and it brought um, you know, close to 10,000 Jews to, to uh, Galveston uh, between those years of 1907 and 1914, which I'm going to elaborate on more when we speak about Galveston. But many of them come to Houston. And most of these immigrants were traditional Jews who needed to to a tr- more traditional type of a, a shul. So, so the, uh, the, 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 the Adath Yeshurun was with the first one, but many of the immigrants settled in the poorer neighborhoods of Houston's Fifth Ward, and they lived too far away. So they start the Adath Israel Congregation in 1905. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then they, they, they build their first shul, and uh, soon they have many more members. And then they hire a, uh, a, a fascinating rabbi, an individual named Rabbi Yaakov Geller, who is a Chartkever chassid. And at the behest of the Chartkever rabbi, his, his rabbi, he moves to the United States and to inspire and to lead, and he becomes one of the most important Orthodox rabbis in Texas in the early 20th century. And he leads this congregation from 1910 until his passing in 1930. And I'm going to get back to him shortly. Now I'm just giving more of an overview. I'm going to get to the different individuals uh, who played a role in this and elaborate more 
on their story. So as Orthodox Jewish immigration moves into other areas of Houston, they start other shuls, Adaf MS, uh, which found, was founded in 1910. Um, and, and, and what was interesting about Houston is that here the, in New York, it was very famous that the more established German Jews who had arrived earlier, there was a lot of tension between their community and the recent arrivals, the immigrants from Eastern Europe. And there was you know, a bit of uh, condescending and patronizing, and it was a, there was a certain uh, d- divisiveness in the New York Jewish community, which is quite, quite well known. What's interesting is that in Houston that did not exist, or existed less, and the and the uh, the German Jews were much more welcoming to the Russian Polish Jews, um, and, uh, and, uh, and 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 they were able to uh, to you know work work uh, well together both in Houston and Galveston. Um, there were these Yiddish speaking immigrants, and and many of them were non-religious altogether. They came from all the revolutionary movements and the Yiddishist uh, political parties in Europe at the time, so they also end up in Houston. They established, the Yiddishists established their own Yiddish Library Society in 1916, and they had over 100 members uh, at one point. Uh, traveling Yiddish theater uh, groups would, would stop in Houston. The Arbeitering, the Workmen's Circle, had an active chapter in Houston, which worked to preserve Yiddish language and culture. Um, quite small, only about 30 members. But they brought the famous Yiddish writer Shalom Ash to Houston, where he spoke to a, a packed audience. Uh, later, they opened their own school. Um, so, so they had all all types of, of, in the Jewish community. There were many charitable and social and welfare and other organizations that developed in the early 1900s and grew, and they assisted local Jews in, in a variety of ways. One problem the organized Jewish community had to face was anti-Semitism. In the early 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan rose to power and prominence in Houston and the rest of Texas. There was a journalist by the name of Billy Mayfield, and he had a Klan newspaper that that you know used all kinds of anti-Semitic stereotypes to attack Jews as as parasites and and extracting wealth from the community. and And, and Mayfield even wrote these words in the newspaper. It's kind of scary. He wrote, "There are lots of good Jews in Houston and all over Texas." You find them with tombstones over their heads, um, uh, on, you know. But fortunately, there was not too many Jewish victims of clan violence. Clan violence. Uh, the clan focused most of their hate at that time on African Americans. Um, but uh, there were Jewish-owned stores that had their windows broken, um, and uh, and the the this unified the Jewish community in Houston uh, in a way. It's very interesting. You know, this immigrant community and established community and they come become more unified and start lobbying for their you know against racist anti-immigration clan type of uh, rhetoric uh, that kind of brings the Jewish community together um, so the the uh, uh, um, that, that's 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 the the, the clan by ni- the 1920s the clans lost a lot of its support and Mayfield's newspaper went out of business so it was a, a for- it was fortunately only a short uh, uh, affair. So Jewish local businesses um, are, are pioneers in the rise of department stores and other industry. They become many Jews, uh, even Im- immigrant Jews uh, from Russia, from Poland, become quite wealthy. For example, there was a, 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 Jewish, a Jewish immigrant by the name of Joe Weingarten. Uh, he built a, uh, uh, he was born in Poland. He built this huge business. Um, he comes to the United States well, as a young boy. His father, Harris Weingarten, opened the grocery store in Houston in 1901. 
And after he grew up, Joe joins the business. He opens a second store in 1920, and he eventually builds a chain of stores, 70 stores, by the time of his death in 1967. And in that capacity, as a local Jewish philanthropist, after World War II, he signs over a thousand affidavits for Jewish refugees uh, to assist them in their immigration so that they would not become uh, guaranteeing to the United States government that they wouldn't become a public uh, burden. One of the interesting things about the Beth Israel Temple that I mentioned, which had become reform, was that it was the old school uh, American Reform Judaism in the fact that it was anti-Zionist. Um, and because of that anti-Zionist policy, there was a breakaway temple called Temple Emmanuel uh, from this, uh, which was also a reform that they were pro-Zionist. After the Six Day War, so Beth Israel changed its stance and became pro-Zionist. But uh, Zionism was at the heart of this bitter dispute that split the Reform, uh, congrega- reform congregation in in Houston because um, the the, uh, the 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 in the 1940s, with all these, all this immigration, and many of these immigrants came from traditional backgrounds, so they were scared. The leaders of the of the Beth Israel community were scared that they're going to bring Zionism into this Reform congregation, and that's uh, that's 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 uh, very problematic uh, because on their charter they had a, a a charter called the Basic Principles, which was a statement of beliefs that each new member would have to ascribe to in order to receive voting rights within the congregation. And included in these principles was a restatement of the of the tenets, the Reform Judaism's tenets issued at the 1885 Pittsburgh Platform, which was in opposition to a Jewish homeland. In other words, in opposition to political Zionists. So, an extremely contentious meeting. They, they took on these basic principles as a requirement for membership. So, you, in other words, if you were Zionist, you weren't welcome to be a member. So they, they left, they, there was a breakaway in 1944 and established Temple Emmanuel, and now there's two Reform congregations, one Zionist, one, non-Zion, one anti-Zionist. And uh, so you could say that there were Reform elements uh, who subscribed to uh, you know, at that point, to this anti-Zionist philosophy, until they changed um, later on. Um, if we move to back to the Orthodox Jewish community, so in 1924, the members of Adat Yishurin who wanted to move away from strict Orthodoxy, they start a conservative congregation, Temple Bethel. So now there's all three streams of American Judaism are now in Houston. Um, and that didn't last long, because in 1946, the two... Uh, the two, Adat Yishurun and Bethel, they come together to, to form Beth Yishurun, uh, and they're both conservative at this point. So that's, unfortunately, this is tracing what happens to orthodoxy, the death of orthodoxy outside of the New York area in the 1940s and 50s, until orthodoxy has a resurgence later on, which we'll get to. But, um, but Beth Yishurun had a compromise that they, very interesting, I haven't seen this in too many other places, but I'm sure it existed in other places as well. Beth Yishurun is officially a conservative temple at this point, but they had an Orthodox minion to accommodate the traditional members for many, many years. Uh, continued on for, for, for decades uh, that they had an Orthodox minion to accommodate more traditional members. Now, post-war, there's this move to the suburbs. As in most urban areas, the Jewish population grows as well. There's uh, 13,000 Jews in the 1930s, and by the 1980s, there's 42,000 Jews in Houston. Uh, many Jews migrated from the Northeast and the Midwest to come to Texas, Texas to Houston specifically, as as the economy grows there. 
Um, so uh, the it, 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 it's fascinating because in 1986, as recently as 1986, less than 5% uh, of the Jewish community in Houston were Orthodox, and that has grown. But already even before that, the shrinking Orthodox population had compelled the city's three Orthodox congregations to merge in the mid-1960s. And by the early 1960s, um, there were three, Beth Jacob and Adaf Emeth, uh, were, and, and the third one was Adaf Israel. They joined together to create the United Orthodox Synagogue. And in 1976, Rabbi Joseph Radinsky came to the United Orthodox Synagogue, and he led this uh, shul, which was the, pretty much the only Orthodox shul, and he, he made it Orthodox. It wasn't, it was traditional uh, when he took it over, but they still had mixed seating, they were still using microphones, and he, under his, uh, under his uh, auspices, Rabbi Radinsky's uh, auspices, they got rid of the, they, they got rid of the microphone, they built a mechitza, and uh, it became the first real uh, modern Orthodox uh, shul in, uh, in Houston at that point. And, um, so he, he established an Erev, and then, of course, you have Chabad, um, the, uh, the, 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 which I'll get back to, because Rabbi Shimon Lazarov is also a huge part of, of the pioneering history of, of Orthodoxy in Houston. Um, but uh, but uh, there's a, eventually a Sephardic shul, Young Israel Houston, and, uh, and many other uh, shuls built up over in more recent decades, which was already contemporary, uh, of course, a, a Jewish life of Houston. Um, so, uh, one of the interesting stories of of, um, of Houston Jewish history is the kala of rabbis, like a yarche kala. So this was a kala, a gathering of all the rabbinical figures in Texas, which was founded in 1927. And uh, the, in, in, for this, a, a gathering, uh, like a conference, so to speak, a scholarly intellectual conference of all the rabbis in Texas, which wanted to encourage Jewish scholarship amongst the member rabbis, and to also to, to you know to have some sort of unity among the different congregations all across Texas. And it met at the Hebrew Institute in Houston, Texas. They had lectures, they submitted papers on various Torah-related topics, and the Kala would meet each year, um, and they and they would meet in a different city. And there was between there were tens of rabbis, between 75 to 80, 90 rabbis sometimes. Um, in all of Texas at the time, and tens of them would attend this Kala meeting, this this gathering. There was a controversy in 1966 at the Kala. They wanted to honor Rabbi William Malev of the Congregation Beth Yishurun in Houston um, on his 20th year as the rabbi in Houston's uh, synagogue for its 75th anniversary of the shul. But the guest speaker at this Texas Kala gathering of rabbis that year was supposed to be a rabbi from New York, who was the rabbi at the Fifth Avenue Synagogue at the time? Later, he was more famously the rabbi in the in the British Empire, Rabbi Emanuel Jacobovitz, and he protested since he and his, since Rabbi Malev and uh, Malev and uh, and his congregation were conservative; they weren't Orthodox. Uh, so he, they, there was a whole controversy at this at this gathering. But this kala of Texas rabbis lasted for half a century until it fell apart during the 1970s. Another prominent story in in Jewish Houston was the story of the Goodman family, Rabbi Mordechai Max Goodman of Kratinga in Lithuania. He arrives as an immigrant in Houston to serve their need as a sheikhet. In 1907, 
at the turn of the century, and his wife Malka and their children followed a few years later. In 1910, Max was one of the founding members of the congregation Adath Emeth, which I mentioned earlier, an Orthodox school that served the Jewish community for many years. Upon arrival in Houston, Max realized that there was no Jewish education for his children. So he writes a letter to his father, who is still back in Lithuania, Rabbi Dave Zussman Goodman, who had studied in the Kelm Yeshiva, and he implored him to come to Houston to teach his own children. Um, and uh, he went to consult with the Chafetz Chaim uh, to see, seek his advice if he should Im- immigrate to the United States. And, and the Chavitz Chaim, after meeting with him and getting to know him, he gave him his blessing and he immigrated to the United States. And he said, go ahead and educate your grandchildren and make sure they stay traditional Jews. So he arrives in Houston and he moves in with another child of his, his daughter, Sarah Malka Danzinger, who also lived in Houston. And, uh, and, they, and he taught his grandchildren. Um, and, and, and one of his grandchildren, uh, Saul Shimon Goodman, who studied with this this Dave Zussman, he went on to stu- to learn in in yeshiva in Chicago in Bismarck Tyra, in the Hebrew Theological College, and um, and and uh, and he becomes a shaykhit, and uh, he goes ahead and comes back to Houston afterwards to to uh, to, to to make you know to be part of the community there and to make sure they have kosher meat. He would become the shaykhit. He was raised in the United States. He was American. He was a native of the community. And he becomes the long-time shaykhit for their many decades. Um, and he provides the kosher meat for the, uh, for the Jewish community. Um, and not only that, but many traditional Jews, members of the conservative community, the Jewish Federation, they accepted his shaykhita and they continued to seek only Orthodox Jewish supervision because of the fact that it was a native son of the community who was the Shaykh and who was well known. Um, so it's so it's an interesting uh, you know, postscript there. In so he comes back to Houston in 1926 and he joins uh, his father as the Shaykh and uh, they opened the butcher shop in Houston and included a delicatessen and they were the only ones providing kosher meat and and food items to the Jews of Houston for a half a century. And during the Great Depression, many families could not afford to buy food, and Saul would give them the chicken and meat on credit. And when they asked for the bill, and he knew that they could not afford to pay, he would say that he could not find the bill, and they should come and pay next time. And this way, he was able to help people feed their families during the Great Depression. And when times improved, and these individuals recovered financially, most were able to pay off their bills to these uh, good-hearted goodmans. Um, and they were renowned for their being hosts uh, to people in in, in, in coming, visiting rabbis and any travelers needing kosher accommodations would come to their home, knowing that they could find kosher uh, food and a warm environment. And when the congregation Adaf Emeth built a new building in 1960, uh, Rabbi Rafael Schwartzman, he, uh, who is the rabbi, he stays with the Goodman family for several months on each Shabbos when he came until his own home next to the shul was built. Um, and the Goodmans later on helped Rabbi Shimon Lazarov the, the legendary Chabad Shliach of Houston, which I'll get to in part two, when he arrived in Houston in the 1970s. So the the um, the Goodmans are a major uh, story of of uh, the development of Houston uh, Jewish uh, life, and also in building the South Texas Hebrew Academy, which is the first uh, Orthodox Jewish day school affiliated with Torah Masora. Uh, built in Houston in 1969. So Saul Goodman and his wife Irene are the ones who host the meeting for the parents in for, for 
parents interested in this more traditional Jewish education, which it was not being provided until the late 1960s, until the South Texas Hebrew Academy was founded in 1969. They started with fewer than 60 students, and within uh, several years they start to grow, they purchase their own building, and, uh, and they become the pioneering school of that area. So this was part one about Houston. We're going to continue talking about the Jewish community of Houston uh, into modern times in part two, and we'll hopefully get to Galveston and some of the other towns in South Texas area um, at that time. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, and and you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.